they would. Let's be seated. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 8. Uh, if you do not have a copy of God's Word with you and you would like one, let me invite you to slip up your hand. Cody's in the back. He's got extra, extra Bibles, and he'd be glad to bring you one if you'd like one to look off of. If you're with the uh, threes and fours class and you're in here worshiping with us, you are welcome to uh, proceed to your class. Mr. Cole's back in the foyer. We're going to um, read a couple verses from our passage last week and the week before in, in Mark chapter 8, and then we're going to proceed on into Mark chapter 9. We've been journeying through the gospel of Mark uh, since Easter of uh, last year with one little bump along the way, which was a giant hurricane. Uh, but we continue our, our study through the gospel of Mark, and, and I don't know about you, but we're here last week. Uh, could you agree with me that last week's sermon was hard? Yes. Yeah, hopefully not just because it was awful, but because the text that we studied was hard. The words that we saw come from the mouth of Jesus last week um, were difficult words. They were words that caused many disciples, even the first century, to turn away and walk away from Jesus, even despite all the miracles that they were seeing. I mean, the miracles were incredible. The draw was there. But then when Jesus opened his mouth and began to describe what it meant to follow Jesus, many turned away sorrowful rather than run to him. And I, and I, I felt that in the room. I felt that in my own spirit as I studied the text last week. There was a weightiness at the end of that sermon where normally uh, the congregation sort of erupts in fellowship and talk with one another, and there was a quietness at the end of that sermon because of what we saw in the text. Um, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus shocks his followers. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus says, I'm going to die. And this shocks his followers so much so that Peter pulls Jesus aside and Peter rebukes Jesus. To which Jesus then turns to Peter and rebukes him. Mark chapter 8, verse 33. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you're, you're letting the preconceptions, your cultural expectations about who you think I should be, dominate your thinking rather than listening to what I'm actually telling you, Peter. You're listening to a whole bunch of other voices that says Jesus should be like this and following Jesus should be like this. And I'm standing in front of you telling you otherwise. Your mind is on the things of man, not on the things of God. So Jesus then turns not only to correct Peter and the disciples' perception of what Jesus would do, but then Jesus begins to correct what their assumption is about what following Jesus would be like. He warns them that following him will mean denying self. 
It will mean taking up a cross. It will mean your life. It will be costly. And it will be worth it. Difficult words from Jesus. The, the disciples certainly are stunned by what he, what he has said. Um, perhaps they're confused. Maybe even worried. I mean, how can Jesus, the one who walks on water, be someone who's going to suffer? How can following him involve denying myself? How in the world can a Roman cross and the most gruesome death be a part of the plan of God? How can all this be truly worth it? And so these questions are swirling around the heads of the disciples, no doubt, in this moment. And then Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, makes an odd promise. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 says this, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's a strange verse. It's a peculiar promise. What in the world does it mean that some of the disciples standing there are not going to die until they see the kingdom in power? Now, Normally, Mark doesn't progress through the story chronologically. Normally, Mark progresses through the story uh, thematically. But in this particular occasion, uh, he, he progresses chronologically. In verse 2, it says, and after six days, and then he goes on to describe how Jesus takes three of the disciples. And in the following story, we find that Jesus takes those three of the disciples and he pulls back the curtain to the kingdom of God. He unveils exactly who they will be following when they pick up their cross to follow. So I think that the story of Mark chapter 9 that we're about to read is intricately connected to the questions that were left swirling in our heads last week about following Jesus. If we're ever going to be a people who pick up our cross, deny ourselves, go against everything that the world and our culture says to us, if we're ever going to be that kind of people, we must catch a vision for the Jesus that he will reveal in this passage. So let's uh, turn our attention to Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Let's read it, and then let's uh, work our way through it after a, a moment of prayer. Verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, uh, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Uh, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, well, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come. First restore all things and how it's written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. And um, we just confess, uh, I just confess, uh, my own weakness and inability to portray the majesty of what must have happened on that mountain 2,000 years ago and what that must mean for us in this room. So, so Lord, we just ask, um, just as you open their eyes to see Jesus miraculously, uh, we pray you would open our eyes to see Jesus miraculously this morning through the, the preaching of your word. And we, we ask this by your grace and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to work our way through the transfiguration story. And along the way, what I want us to see are, are reasons or motivations to follow Jesus in the sacrificial way that we walked through last week. We're going to walk through reasons that we see to do that that are now revealed here in this miraculous moment of transfiguration. So look with me at verse 2 again. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So Jesus chooses three, Peter, James, and John, to go on a little trip. These three out of the 12 are going to be the most influential leaders of the Christian church. Now, I don't know if Jesus chose these three to go on this particular journey because they were the most capable to handle it, or because they needed it the most. Uh, We are not told, judging by Peter's previous encounter with Jesus, where Jesus calls him Satan, (laughs) I'm guessing he takes these three, at least in part, because they might need it the most for what God is going to call them to do. All three were going to suffer greatly for the mission of Christ. All three in the years to follow would need... An all-consuming, soul-gripping, life-changing confidence in the worthiness of Jesus. So Jesus leads them up a mountain. Now that concept alone of the Lord leading his chosen followers up a mountain is not a new concept. Much like the great men of God throughout the Old Testament, they make their way up a high mountain to meet with God. Just like Moses who poured out his life for the people of God, the one in whom the Ten Commandments were handed, Moses, the one who led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses was known for ascending up onto a mountain into a glory cloud to meet with God who was revealing himself to be the one true God. Just like the prophet Elijah was fleeing from persecution of preaching the truth about God, uh, he, he ran from persecution, but he ran up a mountain where he caught a vision of the one true God. But instead of seeing God descend upon the mountain with fire, 
like in Exodus. Instead of, of seeing all the fire and then the wind and the still small voice in the mountain, like with Elijah, the disciples get to the top of the mountain, and then rather than looking for something else to happen, Jesus turns to them, and it's Jesus himself who begins to change. It's Jesus himself who begins to change into something or someone that they could barely put into words. Jesus transfigures. He transforms. The Greek word is metamorphosumai. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. There's a transformation that occurs before their very eyes. And I think uh, it's likely hard to put into words what they were seeing. You know, I, I think a lot of what we see, like especially like in, in Revelation where John later catches a vision of the throne room of God and catches a vision of, of God Almighty and what he'll do in the last days. And, and God says, hey, write this down. And he's like, his eyes are like fire, like rubies. There's some glass. There's a, I mean, they're, they're like stri- striving to find language. From things on earth that they know to describe unbelievable heavenly realities, right? I mean, some of the descriptions we have of the angels circling around, like there was eyes, and it's kind of like a lion, and (laughs) all these types of things. And so what we have here is an eyewitness account of human beings having the curtain pulled back to see the eternal one. Mark chapter 2 verse 3 says this. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So the first thing that's described is Jesus' clothing changes. It's, it's described as radiant, intensely white, beyond what any earthly bleach was capable of. Jesus is all of a sudden dressed in some sort of glorious heavenly wardrobe beyond earthly comparison. The disciples would have recognized this type of clothing, this outfit only from their own imaginations when they heard the prophecies of old. Like Daniel chapter 7, who saw the vision of the coming Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7 Verse 9 says, I looked and thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands of thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Verse 13 of Daniel 7, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is the one who came like a son of man, revealing for them just for a moment the fullness of his divinity, which thus far has been wrapped in humanity in such a way that they missed how glorious he truly was. Now, what could possibly could motivate us to deny ourselves, to pick up a cross and 
follow Jesus? Well, the first thing I think we see in the text is this, a greater glory. Jesus is revealing himself to these men as the one to whom dominion is given. The one to whom belongs glory and a kingdom. The one that all peoples, nations, and languages will serve. The one who will establish an eternal kingdom of which there is no end. A king who is above every king. A lord who is above every lord. He is Yahweh, the one true God, who reveals himself on the top of high mountains. In the transfiguration, we see Jesus in all of his glory, just as the prophets had seen before, just as John would one day see in his writing of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. In verse 12, John writes, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So much of what motivates us in our lives is our own glory. And it is silly. We want to be known. We want to be known to be good. We want to be known to be valuable. We want to be known to be attractive, smart, capable. We want to, we want to validate to ourselves and to everyone else, our own worth by our performance, by our ability, by our accomplishments, by what we can do, by what we can make, by how much we can earn. So much of what humanity lives for is their own glory. This is at least one of the reasons why the concepts of denying yourself and picking up a cross and laying everything down at the feet of Jesus sounds so at odds with your greatest desires. I mean, Roman culture in the first century especially saw the purpose of life to be one's own honor. When you die to protect your honor, you die to protect what others think of you, how highly they esteem you. You live your whole life trying to climb the social status ladder that you and your family might have more honor than when you first begun. All of life was a quest for securing glory, yet Jesus asks them, to give up that pursuit and then to embrace a device of humiliation to deny self rather than promote self. And how could they do that? What would be their motivation to do that? Because 
there's a greater glory to live for. Because on the last day when standing before this Jesus, your most precious accomplishments will seem so utterly foolish and small. (laughs) We were made to point people to glory, but not ours. I mean, we were made to live for something that is glorious, but not us. Rather, the glory of our God, the glory seen most clearly in the person and the finished work of Jesus. And as we point others to his glory and we see his glory, you know what we'll find? The joy we were looking looking for in the first place. (laughs) The joy we thought we'd find in our own glory, we will find in God's glory. The Old Testament imagery is clear and the dazzling white picture of Jesus. But as we progress through the story, uh, Jesus' connection to the past is made even clearer than just those images in Daniel chapter 7. Look with me again at verse, at verse 3. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So as the disciples behold the shining, transfigured person of Jesus, suddenly he's no longer alone. There's some other dudes there. Elijah and Moses are there, and they are giving their attention to Jesus. They're they're speaking with Jesus. Jesus. Elijah, one of the most mightiest prophets in the Old Testament, in the climactic moment in his life, he, in his life, had ascended to a mountain to talk with the glorious God. Moses, the great deliverer of the people of God from Egypt and the mediator of the Old Covenant, the provider of the Ten Commandments, he, in his climactic moment in his life, ascended to a mountain to talk with the glorious God. But now in this moment, at the top of a mountain, Elijah and Moses are there directing their attention to Jesus, the manifestation and revelation of the one true God. Moses and Elijah's presence in this revelatory moment was many things, but it was at least this. It's a sign to his followers that everything that has come to pass over the history of the world was leading to what Jesus was about to accomplish. That everything from the beginning of time was culminating in the person and the work of this Jesus. That Jesus' plan to die on a cross that he had just explained to them His plan to rise again was not a cosmic mistake. It was not a divergence from the plan. Jesus' coming, living, dying, rise again for the sins of the world has been God's attention since, since Elijah, since Moses, and since long before that. Thousands of years earlier, Moses was looking to the day when Jesus would come. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 God speaks to Moses, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Again, Moses says in verse 18, I will raise up from them like a a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. The prophets spoke of a greater prophet that was to come one day. The prophet spoke of a day where an Elijah-like prophet would come and prepare for that guy's arrival. 
Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'll send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Later, Jesus will explain that when Elijah came preaching in the wilderness, that the one has arrived. When John the Baptist came preaching that, he was the Elijah that the prophets were speaking of. He was pointing to Jesus. Some have thought in this instance of the transfiguration that they're there. The reason why Elijah and Moses are there is because Elijah is representing the prophets and Moses is representing the law. And that in Jesus, both are fulfilled. With both of these representatives directing their attention to Jesus, it's clear that though these particular characters in the story are big names who did big things, Jesus is the main character. And he's the one that they've been waiting on. Now, again, just from that point, I ask, what motivates us to deny ourselves and pick up a cross and follow Jesus? To give up on things in this life to follow the Christ. Well, number one was a greater glory. But number two, I think it's helpful to think in terms of a bigger, a bigger story. Each of us lives our lives according to a narrative. We live our lives according to a story. And that story has a desired ending. It has main characters. It has principles of morality by which we live. For some of us, we live according to the story that we want to write for ourselves. We have our own vision or version of what the dream story is. We have our own vision of what our happily ever after is. And for most of us, we are the main character of our story. And, and we're tracking as the main character through the, uh, through the opposition and antagonist and, and low spots. And we're working our way to the happily ever after. And we want to live lives that are worth living. We have different definitions of what that life is. And part of the reason that Jesus has called us self-denial and to give up our lives is so shocking is because it runs contrary to the story we've written for ourselves. When our story is most important, when our story, like, like the things we desire, our careers or financial stability or our family vacations or our relationships and our ultimate happiness on earth is most important and we're trying to secure that story, we are carrying out our own narrative and anyone or anything that gets in the way of our desired story becomes the enemy of the story. But the call to follow Jesus is, to, is a call to sacrifice that little bitty story and to see yourself and your story as part of a much bigger story. The transfiguration blows up and zooms out to show that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the climax to a much bigger narrative, a story that began thousands of years ago and will continue on into thousands and thousands of millennia later. Peter himself would write in 1 Peter 1, Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. 
Peter knew firsthand that even the most impressive figures of the Old Testament, like Elijah and Moses, were simply small supporting roles to the main character, who was Jesus himself. And, and church, it is so important for us to let the Bible shape our worldview. This is, there is so much bad preaching out there. And what that bad preaching does, it takes this book, which, which is a story about the God of the universe who created all things, whom you sinned against, and who God's going to redeem and bring into his presence for the gl his glory forever and ever. It takes this book, and what it does, pastors take this book and they turn it into a tool to help you get whatever story you want in your life. And they pull out verses, and they pull out sentences, and they pull them out of the, the big story, which is God's, and they say, hey, put this on your bumper sticker, and put this on your coffee cup, and it will encourage you to chase after your story even harder, and nothing will stop you to make you the main character of your story where you receive the most glory. And that is a shame. That is a shame, because those are those are bad stories, pointless stories. There's a bigger, better, more glorious story which says, hey, all your dreams and all your desires and all the things that you think are most important, there's actually something way bigger going on in the world. <laughs> there's something way bigger happening in this book, and you've, invited to, you've been invited to play a part. <laughs> you've been invited into the story of the God who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, who wants to transform you and bring you into his glory forever, but it's about him and it's not about you. And that's good for you. Read your Bibles as one big story, not as helpful little sentences just to help you achieve your own story. If you understand your life to be a supporting role to the internal unraveling plan of God, it will change how you live your life. Many ways it'll change it. One of the ways it'll change it is that you'll be a more peaceful person. Because you're not writing the story. You're not the sovereign one over the story. You're a part and you get to play whatever part God allows you to play. And you might think it's not big enough or that it's too small or you'd like it different ways, but you don't, you're not the author of the story. But you're super thankful to be a part of it. And man, that just frees you up. That frees you up to live a joyful and content life rather than the life that's all about your own story. So here's Jesus in dazzling heavenly garments. Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible. Elijah, the great prophet who called down fire. And then there's three scared-to-death fishermen. <laughs> In verse 7, the scene shifts your attention back to the three. And I love this, verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> I love, you got to love the honesty. You know, Mark is, uh, uh, as, as far as we can tell, Mark is writing, but Peter is the one giving Mark the material. I mean, this is eyewitness account of, of Peter. So I mean, you can imagine Peter kind of retelling the story, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you got to love the, the, the concept of Peter having no idea what to say, being completely terrified, but feeling like he should say something. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> rather than just sitting in awe and silent before the glory that he's seeing is like, okay, I gotta, I gotta, guys, we're, we gotta do something here, right? So, so Peter witnessing the glory of the one true God shining in the person of Jesus, witnessing the two most famous Old Testament heroes talking with Jesus, doesn't know what to do with himself, wants to be helpful, wants to be faithful in the moment, doesn't know how long Moses or Elijah are gonna be there. Like, they're gonna stay the night, we're gonna like cook over a fire. Like, like is this gonna be like a whole like mountain retreat chill time between all of us six here? So, so Peter's like, hey, you guys want me to make some tents for you guys? <laughs> now, he might be just offering to make them shelters uh, if they're going to stay longer. Or maybe he's offering something more elaborate. You know, in Moses' day, God instructed that a tabernacle be built to house the presence of God. There was an understanding that absolute holiness and gloriousness of God's presence is actually a dangerous thing to sinful humans. You don't want to walk into the holy presence of God with all of your sin uh, because that could be very bad for you. The sin of humanity must be separated from the holy presence of God. So the tabernacle was constructed with a large veil dividing God's space and man's space. You've all heard uh, perhaps you've heard the story of, of priests who would go into God's space once a year with the blood of a, of a perfect lamb to, to sacrifice to the Lord for the forgiveness of the people. And they would tie a rope around his leg just in case he went in with sin and they had to yank him out because he died in the presence of God. So perhaps Peter's afraid here that if we stay in the presence of this glory for much longer, we're going to die. So Peter's like, hey, let's build some tents for you guys. <laughs> Let's create some separation here because, because you can almost hear the trembling voice of Peter just interrupting the conversation, saying, excuse me, sorry to interrupt, but, but it'd be a good idea if we built some tents. Peter's asking how he can help. Peter's asking how can they continue in the presence of such glory. And then the voice of God the Father responds in verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So Peter, all frantic and such, always kind of sticking his foot in his mouth, asked to separate himself from the glory he's beholding, and then he is swept in the glory cloud of God's presence now, the imagery of that alone would, should be familiar. I mean, all of this should be familiar. We think of Moses in Exodus 24. Uh, Exodus 24, verse 15, Moses went up on the high, high mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Interesting that Mark highlighted six days had passed since the previous conversation there. I wonder if he's thinking back to this moment. Whatever the case is, the the disciples are overwhelmed by the presence of God, overwhelmed with not knowing what they should do or how they should do it. And from the cloud, the voice of God Almighty booms with one declaration and one simple command. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. As Peter frantically tries to figure out how he can serve in this moment, God essentially says, just shut up and listen to him. And in a moment... The cloud, the dazzling clothes, Moses and Elijah, all of it disappears, and there's just Jesus standing there in his normal, dirty clothes, 
from a long hike in his unremarkable human stature. And they're said, they say, listen to him. Now there's a lot that Peter and James and John don't understand yet. There's a lot that they don't get. There's a lot of unknowns with what Christ is going to do, how this is going to work, what following him is going to look like. But, but I think that this moment should have been very clear to them from that point forward. Whatever happens, even if we don't know what's next or understand why, we should just listen to him. What motivates us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus? One, a greater glory. Two, a bigger story. And lastly, number three, a higher authority. There's a simplicity to how this vision ends. Still with so many questions and a lot of worries and misunderstandings. I mean, you can imagine them making their way back down the mountain. In fact, uh, in the next paragraph, as they make down their way down the mountain, they're, they're, they're kind of asking some probing questions. <laughs> they still don't understand why death and resurrection is going to be a thing. They ask some questions about Elijah. Well, wasn't Elijah supposed to come? And Jesus says, well, that was, that was John the Baptist. And th- there's a lot they're trying to figure out. There's so much they don't know, but the marching orders are clear. There's one person who has authority over your life, and that person is Jesus. His word is the authority. By his word, you've seen already, he cast out demons. By his word, he heals diseases. By his word, he calms storms. By his word, he tells you the best way to live your life. Listen to him. The question for every Christian in this room is not, what do I want to be true? What do I think is best? What do I want to do? The question should always be, what has Jesus said? When I'm in a pastoral counseling situation and we read the scripture and someone says, well, yeah, I see that, but already we're starting from the wrong posture. You can hear this emphasis later in Peter's writings in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. Peter writes, after having heard this message, he writes, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower Falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. I want to turn your attention to one more passage just because it's interesting. Peter writes about this moment later. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says, Peter says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Can you just hear him saying it? <laughs> For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word fully, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, we were there at the transfiguration. We saw the glory of Jesus. We heard the voice of God. You have his word in the scriptures. Listen to it. It carries unrivaled authority. And that authority, that listen to him moment, he has all authority. That's an authority that we don't just submit ourselves under. That's an authority that goes with us as we submit ourselves to him. Jesus does not say, hey, go follow some instructions and figure it out. Jesus says, follow my instructions, and I, the one who has all authority over all things, will walk with you. The final instructions Jesus gives to the disciples. 
Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The authority of Jesus is something we submit to, we listen to, we teach about, and it's an authority that goes with us. We do not have to fear what we don't know. We don't have to fear what we can't do, what we might endure, what our future holds, or what following Jesus might mean. It's a lot simpler than that. Just listen to him. What motivates us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus? Sure, there are more things, but at least from this text, I see three. There's a greater glory to live for, a bigger story we're a part of, and a higher authority that we should be listening to. So let's pray that these things would help us to follow Christ. Lord, we love you. And we just want to thank you for the scriptures. We want to thank you for the scriptures that Peter says were not produced by the will of man, but from God, as the authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you've given us this book where when we're confused about what Jesus has said or is is saying, we can turn to it. We pray for our congregation, for every person in this room who struggles to follow you, we pray that they would catch a vision for a greater glory, a much bigger story than their small story, and a much higher authority. Lord, we pray, use this text to help us follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond in song.